If you have your copy of God's word, please turn over to Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, beginning in verse 12 this morning. Hebrews chapter 5, verse 12, running through Hebrews chapter 6, verse 12. Hebrews 5, beginning in verse 12. For though by this time you ought to be teachers... You have need again of for someone to teach you the elementary principles of the oracles of God. And you have come to need milk and not solid food. For everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of righteousness, for he is an infant. But solid food is for the mature, who because of practice have their senses trained to discern good and evil. Therefore, leaving the elementary teaching about Christ, let us press on toward maturity, not laying again a foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of instruction about washings and laying on of hands, of resurrection of the dead and eternal judgment. And this we will do if God permits. For in the case of those who have been once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the ages to come and then fallen away, it is impossible to renew them again to repentance Since they again crucify to themselves the son of God and put him to open shame for ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation useful to it for those whose forsake it is also tilled receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it is worthless and close to being cursed and it ends up being burned. But beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation Though we are speaking in this way for God is not unjust so as to forget your works uh, and the love which you have shown toward his name and having ministered and and still ministering to the saints. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end so that you will not be sluggish, but imitators of those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truthfulness of your word. Father, thank you for the occasional severity of your word, jarring us out of a complacent place and causing us to be refocused toward the diligence that our faith calls for. Father, that you call for. Father, help our longings and our mindset to be turned toward the risen Christ. And may our love for him grow and in our love for him growing, cause our love for one another to grow as well. And we ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. So this morning, a a very difficult and challenging passage from Hebrews. And there's a handful of texts in the Bible. um, and, And if you've spent much time studying the word, you have these texts yourself as well. There's a handful of texts in the Bible that bother me, not because they're hard to understand, not because they're that they present something in a way that that doesn't seem quite right, but because they are so plain and so straightforward and yet so remarkably challenging to the way that you think about your life and your relationship with the Lord, that they make you uncomfortable. And for me personally, behind the end of the Sermon on the Mount, where he basically looks at those people and says, um, you know, many on that day 
uh, will hear me say, depart. And Lord, did we not do all these things? Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. That's incredibly disturbing passage. My, personally, my number one most disturbing passage that it, for me in the scripture. A very close photo finish second is this one from Hebrews 5 and 6. This is remarkably unsettling what the writer to Hebrews is saying here. And most of the sermons that I've ever heard preached from this text do a great disservice to this text by finding the hundreds of verses that seem to disagree with this text and using those hundred or so verses to explain away what it is the writer to the Hebrews is saying. I was listening uh, this week, if, if you don't tune in, check out our good friends over at KVE have a, a teaching station now called The Well, and they got a lot of great teachers on there, and Alistair Begg was on, and he was going through this text in Hebrews, and he got to this particular one like two weeks ago, and I was like, oh, great, I won't have to study for this one, I'll just see what Alistair Begg's got to say about this, and I'll throw on my really cool accent, and, and, and we'll just do this really good thing that Alistair Begg is doing, and then he got to this section, and he said, and, and he started talking about all of the verses in the Bible that seem to say something different from this. And so instead of letting this point just hammer home and stand there as it is, he kind of explained away the point of this passage by saying, hey, just go read those hundred other verses. And I get it because you don't want people having a misunderstanding of the faith. You don't want people walking away in unnecessary despair. But occasionally, the Bible leaves you hanging on purpose. It's kind of like the end of Isaiah. The end of Isaiah is really stout, and it seems like there should be another few verses at the end of that. And there's not. There's a few other passages in the Bible that are kind of like that. This is one of those. And so this morning, we're looking at how Jesus is better than our shortcomings and our spiritual immaturity. And so he begins in chapter 5, verse 12, moving through chapter 6, verse 3, that we are slow to learn the things of Christ. And whoever was preaching the sermon that became a letter had the audacity to look at the congregation that they were preaching it to and declare that these people who likely were facing severe persecution at the time, dying for their faith, being arrested for their faith, having family members carried off and being either put to death or arrested for their faith, an increased number of widows in the church because the men were being put to death and the women were being allowed to live and they weren't able to get work and the church was having a, a, an increased financial burden of supporting these extra widows in the church. This is the audience that he's preaching to. He has the audacity to look at that crowd and say, most, if not all of you, are still in infancy in your faith and you haven't grown up in Christ yet. Whew. Okay. That there should be growth in Christ. And so what is he talking about here? What is he talking about? So when you begin kind of walking through this, he, he tells them in verse 12, by now many of you ought to be teachers. But the elementary things still need to be taught to you. You should be eating solid food, but instead you're just drinking milk. And whenever you're used to only having milk, you, 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 you struggle 
with the word of righteousness. Solid food is for the mature. Those able to discern good from evil. So what is he talking about? The foundation of the gospel should be built upon in a Christian's life. And this is coming from someone who has a great admiration for theological knowledge. Christians should know stuff. You should know stuff. The problem is, is the Bible never lets you just know stuff. Everywhere it warns off against empty knowledge. We know stuff for a reason. And it's for a firm foundation of a life of righteousness to be built on. The things that we come to know as Christians, Jesus' resurrection from the dead, his crucifixion on the cross, his ascension to the right hand of God, the, the ceremonial realities of the Christian life, um, uh, all sorts of things that you could kind of walk through that are sort of basic, the future resurrection from the dead, eternal judgment. Some of these are listed here in chapter 6. These things should lead to action and transformation in a person's life. It does absolutely no good, Christian friend, for you, as Paul says, to have all knowledge, but to not have love. It's empty. It does us no good to be able to expound on a variety of principles about God's sovereignty and God's presence and God's imminence and God's greatness and God's glory And have lives that still reflect more closely to the pagan people around us than a life that's been transformed by being intimately woven into the life of Christ. And the writer, the preacher to the Hebrews is declaring to this congregation, you are still in infancy in their knowledge. Absolutely not in their life action. Definitely so. You should be beyond the essential foundational doctrinal principles and those essential foundational doctrinal principles should have caused a transformation to take place in your life. Notice here what he says. In verse 13 of chapter 5, he says, everyone who partakes only of milk is not accustomed to the word of what? The word of knowledge? The word of doctrine? The word of instruction? The word of insight? No. What, What does he say? The word of what? Righteousness. Righteousness. How one's life is lived out in God. Righteousness. But solid food, verse 14, is for the mature. Who because of practice have their senses trained to discern right from wrong in doctrinal principles. No, it's not what he says. They have their... Senses trained to discern what? Good and evil. The maturity of a Christian's life is not marked by what they know. The maturity of a Christian's life is marked by how the things that they know now influence the way that they live. It's one thing to have knowledge. It's another thing to have wisdom. You can't have wisdom without knowledge. But you can have knowledge without wisdom. And this is the declaration that the writer to the Hebrews is making, that many are slow to learn the things of Christ. 
And it's evident even still in our world today. It's evident even still in our world today. I was looking at a thing recently online. And someone was making some commentary about the way people are treating one another during this very tense, heightened political season that we're in right now. I don't know if you've noticed or not, but people are being a little bit sharp and rude toward those that they disagree with these days. And someone was making commentary about that from a Christian perspective. And they said, you know, it seems a little out of place the political insults that Christians are giving those that they disagree with. And then they said, come to think of it, it seems a little out of place that Christians are insulting people at all. If you're missing why that seems out of place, I would encourage you to consider yourself possibly one of the ones that the writer of the Hebrews is discussing as trapped in their infancy. Because there's a growth that takes place for those who are in Jesus. There's a manner in which transformation occurs. There is a life of righteousness that is developed by the abiding presence of the Spirit in the Christian person's life. And it doesn't do enough to know a lot of things. If the things that you know don't transform into a life that looks like Jesus. He said, by now you ought to be teaching others how to live this life, but yet you still need people to teach you. And again, friends, consider the context of who's hearing this. By this time. By this time, very likely. Severe persecution is breaking out against the Christians. Severe persecution. And so the writer to the Hebrews throws this challenge down for people to grow up in their faith. And then he makes an unusual turn. And this is what I was talking about at the beginning of this very uncomfortable, terrifying thing. In Hebrews chapter 6, verses 4 through 8, there is this, this warning about the danger of abandoning the faith. Friends, this is a terrifying passage. If we take the words in this text seriously as a standalone, and we don't find ways to excuse away what this person is saying, this is a terrifying piece of writing. So if you don't mind, today I'm going to preach this text as if it's the only one in the Bible. And I'm not going to go and grab the other 100 to 150 verses that seem to say the opposite of what this is saying. And use that as a comfortable crutch to excuse away the point that the writer of the Hebrews is trying to make. We do a great disservice to Bible text when we do that. There's a reason do you think the writer to the Hebrews knows that salvation is of the Lord and firmly secure in those who've been given, uh, who have received it from the hand of God? Of course he does. That's like actually in other places in Hebrews itself. 
Like it's really clear that this person understands that salvation is a solidified thing that comes only from the hand of God and that you can't actually do anything to make God take salvation back away from you. This is so clear in the rest of Hebrews, we wouldn't have to go to any of those other passages. But right in the middle of this sermon slash letter, whoever's doing this throws an atomic bomb down in the middle of the sermon. And it's there for a reason. And it's not there for us to like put a bunch of barricades up and go, this is not what they meant to say. No, this is what he meant to say. So we're just going to let him say it and we're just going to all be really uncomfortable together. Here we go. First, in this terrifying passage, he says, for in the case of those who have been enlightened, That means they have had the light turned on. They have gained insight and awareness into the essential reality of what the gospel is. All right. So that's number one. They've been enlightened from the case of those who've been enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift. We were even praying this morning from Psalm 34, taste and see that the Lord is good. There's this, uh, we're having the communion table to get today. There's this concept of tasting God that they have tasted, they have consumed. It has become a part of their person, the heavenly gift from above, the gospel redemption of Jesus Christ. And the most terrifying part of this triad have been made partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now. Just real quick, in the book of Hebrews by itself, the word partakers is used three other times, excuse me, four other times. One of them we won't talk about today because it's used later, it's used after this. But we've already seen this word used three other times before this one. In chapter 1, verse 9, when citing the Old Testament Psalms, It says, you have loved righteousness, you have hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. That word companions is actually the word partakers. He has elevated you, the Messiah, above all of those who are participating with you in this quest for the glory of God. All right, so there's this concept of being a sharer in something. And then in chapter 3, verse 1, it says, Therefore, holy brethren partakers of a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So as we saw, if you remember when we were discussing chapter three, that there's this participation that we have in the heavenly calling, that we are with God in Christ because of the gospel. And then in chapter three, verse 14, when he was speaking earlier of the peril of unbelief, Let's back up to 13, but encourage one another day after day, as long as it's still called today, so that none of you will be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have become partakers, sharers of Christ. If we hold fast the beginning of our assurance firm till the end. All of these words are clear that there's this concept of active, meaningful participation in Christ in the gospel. And then you get to chapter six and he uses the exact same word of participation in the life of the Holy Spirit. So hear me. He throws a triad out there of words to describe these people. They are enlightened. They've had the light turned on. They have tasted 
the heavenly gift, and they are partakers of the Holy Spirit. Now, if you want to get really technical, he just threw out that triad to represent the Trinity's work in salvation. The enlightenment that comes to us comes from God the Father. The tasting and seeing that the Lord is good comes from the communion reality of consuming the body of Jesus as the bread of life. And the participation of communion with God is found in the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit that now connects us with the mind of God. The entire Trinity at work in our salvation process. The, the writer of the Hebrews has just established a triune connectivity of salvation. And then he says this. The case of those who have done all of that and they've tasted the good word of God and the powers of the age to come and then have fallen away. So this that I just did from the pulpit is what I've been doing all week in my study. I read it and I just kind of slide my chair back and I go, it's, you can't have just said that. Like, really? And I've been battling the temptation all week to go ahead and throw up on the screen the 100 to 150 verses found in just the New Testament alone that seem to make this not right. You can't say that. You can't say that people have been enlightened by God the Father. You can't say that people have tasted Christ the Son. You can't say that they were partakers in the Holy Spirit. You can't say that they have engaged and tasted the good word of God, which is the gospel. You can't say that they've engaged the powers of the age to come, the more apostolic reality of the gifts of God, and then say that they fall away. You cannot say that. It's not okay. I very nearly called my free will Baptist brother I graduated seminary with, to ask him, what do you do with this? I know what he does with this. He and I have talked about this verse before. And I think he's wrong. But this is what he's saying. They've tasted the good word. They've tasted the power of age. And then they've fallen away. And this word for fallen away means apostasy. To abandon the faith. You say, Philip, why are you hammering this home? Because friends, we have a really strong tendency in just evangelical conservative Christianity in general. But specifically those who have more of a sovereign orientation and their general theological bent to come to a text like this. And rather than let it rattle us to the core like it should, immediately find ways to comfort our minds by excusing it away. And that is not what would have happened when he was preaching this sermon. There's a reason he threw this bomb out there in the middle of these people. There's a reason why the Holy Spirit inspired whoever heard him preach this to write it down as a letter and for it to become part of the canon of Scripture that all Christians throughout all ages would be able to read and have their cage rattled as well. There's a reason why it's here. And it's not for us to excuse it away. It's for us to become remarkably uncomfortable. So let's piece it together. We're going to finish this and then we're going to piece it together. So what happens to these people who have fallen away? It is, this is even more uncomfortable. It is impossible 
to renew them again to repentance since they again crucify to themselves the Son of God and put him to open shame. And then he gives a metaphor. So they put Christ to shame. They cannot be renewed. And he gives a metaphor of a ground that's cared for but yields nothing of value. Notice this. It says, For the ground that drinks the rain, which often falls on it and brings forth vegetation, useful to those whose sake it is also tilled, receives a blessing from God. But if it yields thorns and thistles, it's worthless and close to being cursed and ends up being burned. And then what you need to think about, if you want to like really wrap your brain around people like this, Think about those people from the end of the Sermon on the Mount that we talked about a second ago. Lord, did we not do many miracles in your name? Did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name? And notice what Jesus says to them. He doesn't say, no, you didn't do any of that stuff. They did that stuff. They tasted and engaged the powers of the age to come. Friends, think about Judas. If you will, when Jesus sent the disciples out two by two, Judas was one of those guys. And when they come back to report to Jesus all that they had done when they went out two by two, do you know what we don't have recorded in Scripture? It says everyone reported of all the great works and we cast out demons and we healed the sick and people were repenting and coming to the kingdom. And nobody and we don't have anywhere in the text where somebody slid up next to Jesus and said, hey, I was partnered up with Judas and didn't go so well for us. And he wasn't able to do any of this stuff like I was having to pull all the weight of like the casting out the demons and healing the sick and like preaching stuff because just every time he tried, it just didn't work. We don't have that. We have Judas going out with the two by two, Judas coming back with the two by two and everybody from the two by two saying we were doing great works in the name of God. We were enjoying the powers of the age to come. And yet, what does it say about Judas? He was a son of destruction. Friends, there's this metaphor of a ground that's cared for and it's tilled and it should produce good things. And instead, it just gives thorns and thistles. Friends, this whole section is not about the doctrine that you believe. This whole section is tied around. Yes, you might believe the right doctrine, the elementary principles of resurrection and crucifixion and the judgment to come. You may have a great foundation of doctrinal truth, but is your life producing fruit? Does it look like Jesus? What is the fruit of the spirit? It is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. Is your life producing fruit? And the problem is, Christian friends, we're honest. Either in our own lives or the lives of other Christians that we observe. If we're honest, lots of Christian people, quite likely ourselves included, have a great firm foundation of knowledge base and a life that is producing thorns and thistles and not fruit of the spirit. And this passage says. You may have been enlightened. Like I really, physically, I have to kind of back away. You may have been enlightened. 
You may have tasted the Lord. You may have been a partaker of the Spirit and tasted the good word and experienced the powers of the age to come and yet still abandon the faith. You say, Philip, well, how are you going to help me work through that? I'm not because he doesn't. You say, really, you're just going to let me sit out here in all of this discomfort? Welcome. I've been here all week. This is remarkably uncomfortable passage of scripture, but I will give you some solace because verse nine is here. I love that three little word, but, but beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you. Amen. (laughs) We speak this way to you. I'm talking this way to you to jar you, to challenge you, to rattle your cage, to wake you up from your slumber. But God is not unjust. Verse 10, for God is not unjust. This is the beauty of sovereign salvation. God is not unjust. What is he not unjust to do? We are convinced, verse 9, of better things for you concerning what? The accompanying salvation, even though we're speaking to you this way. For God is not unjust as to do what? Forget your work and the love which you have shown first toward his name. That's the key. What's the difference between the people at the end of the Sermon on the Mount and the people that he's talking to here, there was a love for the name of God. First, there wasn't a love for doctrine. There wasn't a love for being right. There wasn't a love for religious platitudes. There wasn't a love for the Pharisaism that can so easily trick us into thinking that we're truly walking with God. There wasn't a love for the legalism. There was a genuine love for the name of God. Which, friends, the scripture makes clear everywhere, cannot exist in an individual apart from the miraculous, spiritual, sovereign, gracious work of salvation wrought in a human heart by God himself. You cannot on your own love the name of God. You cannot. So there's a remarkable encouragement after that hammer of God's not unjust. He will not forget the fact that you love his name. Pointing it back to the glory of God and not the glory of the individual. But then notice that he doesn't get off point. See what he says. This is so great. Verse 10. Your work and the love which you have shown toward his name. And how have you shown love toward his name? In having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. There's never a divorcing of a love for God from a love for people. If you only love God, you're a spiritualist. If you only love people, you're a socialist. Not politically speaking, but philosophically speaking. If you love God and man, you have found the avenue of the right religion that pleases God. 
Because they cannot be divorced from other. What is the greatest commandment? That you love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second one is just like it. You will love your neighbor as yourself. Against these two things, there is no law. Scripture makes this so clear. So how do I show that I love God's name? How do I do that? By the ministry and service and transformation of my life that causes me to sacrifice self for the love of the other person. My willingness to lay down my rights and privileges the same way that Jesus laid down his rights and privileges for the benefit of the other. That's the demonstration that I truly love the name of God. And so notice what the author says here. In verse 11, we desire that each one of you show the same diligence so as to realize the full assurance of hope until the end. We long for diligence. Verse 12, though, so that you will not be sluggish. Friends, there is a laziness that sets in. When our religious life is marked solely and completely by the by the gaining of doctrinal knowledge. There's a sluggishness that sets in. When our lives are not also marked by the sacrificial work of serving and loving the other. So that God's name may be made great in their lives. We have missed completely the point of why Christ has saved us. In action. Obviously there's a foundational reason why Christ has saved us. And it's for our good and for his glory. But there is a purpose. Why? Vith and Muerbe in their book um, Family Matters many years ago made a remarkable statement. They said, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. God has saved us, per Ephesians chapter 2, for good works. For God's benefit? Absolutely not. He doesn't need them. For our neighbor's benefit. That's why we've been redeemed in the practice of our religion on this side of glory. And the writer to the Hebrews is declaring to this audience, listen, you may be suffering. You may be going through persecution. You may be facing hard times. You may have great doctrinal knowledge. But do you love your neighbor? If not, you're immature, your own milk, and you may have been enlightened and actually abandoning the faith. Friends, that's... Severe. Like that's severe. That's harsh. That hurts. That makes you want to get angry and respond in ways and like sit down and type up a response and be like, look, you can't talk to me like that. But friends, it's the reality of it. We've not been saved to know stuff. We've been saved for our knowledge To be transformed into wisdom, which is the action of knowledge. And we live in a world 
filled with the access to information. We can just jump on Google anytime we want to and find out anything we want to find out about anything. It's remarkable. It's remarkable. This afternoon, if I wanted to, I could go on and I could search on Google about nuclear reactors. And I could gain all kinds of information and insight and knowledge about nuclear reaction. But, but you better believe no one wants me to try and build one. Knowledge, wisdom. Just because you know stuff doesn't mean that you're able to live stuff. And the scripture makes it very clear here that that is Christian maturity. If you really are growing in Christ, it will be demonstrated not so much by what you know, though that's important. It will be demonstrated by what you do with what you know. And if you're not doing anything with what you know, you may have been enlightened and actually have abandoned the faith. Enlightened by the good word of God, enlightened by all this knowledge, enlightened by all this insight, enlightened by the awareness of who Christ is, and yet set it all aside and walked away from it. (laughs) And so, friend, this morning, the question that we have to ask, what shortcoming or spiritual immaturity in our lives are we allowing to be greater than Jesus? What piece of information do we have that we're considering sufficient and good enough to excuse away the lack of growth and the lack of bearing of the fruit of the Spirit in our lives? Friends, it's very easy to do. It's very easy to do. It's very easy to have a quick right answer, but not actually love the person you're giving the answer to. It's very easy to have a quick right answer and not be gentle with the person that you're answering to. It's very easy to have a quick right answer, but not to be one who's in love with peace with the one that you're giving the answer to. It's very easy to have a quick right answer and to lack all joy that that quick right answer should bring to your life, especially in the midst of trying circumstances. You think through those who left Egypt and traveled through the Exodus and were condemned not to go into the promised land. The example that the writer to Hebrews is used at least three or four times already in this sermon. They had more insight than any of us will ever think about having. They watched God bring the plagues down on Egypt. They tasted the bread that he sent across that desert. They drank from the rock that was struck by Moses. They saw God's power and his sound of his voice and the thundering of the mountain when Moses went up to receive the law of God. And yet... They had no joy in the midst of their circumstances and did nothing but complain against the gracious goodness of God. Friends, you can have all manner of insight and truly lack the fruit of the Spirit. Love and joy and peace and patience 
and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. Friends, the writer of the Hebrew here is saying this is a shortcoming, a spot of spiritual immaturity. And friend, what thing in our lives are we allowing to be greater than Jesus actually is? Because Jesus should move us from mere information to a transformation of life that is active and vibrant and truly loving by ministering to our neighbors. And I think a lot of us are happy to do what the Pharisees did and know a lot of things, but not actually know God. And friends, I'm leaving it here. <laughs> this is a really uncomfortable passage of Scripture. But it's supposed to be. Because if it weren't for texts like this, I know at least in my own life, I would be willing to be sluggish as it warns here. I wouldn't be diligent. I wouldn't ask the hard questions of myself. Of how am I being made not just to know like Christ, but to live like Christ. That's maturity. That's growth. That's transformation. Let's pray together. Father God, thank you for a hard and challenging word. Father, thank you for difficult texts like this one that cut deeply to the core of the human person. As it said just previously to this, that sharp Two-edged sword separating the bone from the marrow, getting down to the heart of the matter. Father, forgive me when I stand only on the elementary principles of the faith and my life is not moved toward righteousness. It's not moved toward transformation. It's not moved toward love of neighbor. It's not moved toward ministry and service and compassion. When the ground tilled in my life is well watered and well taken care of and yet bears thorns and thistles worthy only of being destroyed. Father, forgive me when my life does not bear out the fruit of the spirit. Father, let each one of us take very seriously this somber warning that's given today. And as your word says elsewhere, let us examine ourselves. And Father, I thank you that here in this very text, I pray that it can be said of us that that we are convinced of better things concerning us. Father, I pray, I pray by your grace and for your glory that this is true. And that you would give us a confidence, not in ourselves, but in the greatness of the glory of Christ to be found in us. Father, help us to look this way. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, we have the opportunity to share in the Lord's table together. Uh, For those of you who are in our service together, there are uh, at the back in the front a chance to get some of the communion 
uh, items. If you don't have those, if you'd like to slip out now and get those. For those who are joining us at home online, we're going to give you a few minutes to make sure that you are prepared. And then we will share in the Lord's table together. This morning, we have the opportunity to share in the Lord's table together. First, with the wafer, Jesus made a declaration that this is my body. Take and eat all of it. Father God, we thank you that through the broken body of our Lord Jesus Christ, you have taken broken sinners like ourselves and made us whole. Father, we thank you that it pleased you, as it says in Isaiah, to crush Jesus. Father, we thank you that by his wounds we are healed. Father, we thank you that you have set your wrath upon your son, that righteousness and life can be placed on us. And we praise you for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Scripture also makes a declaration about the common cup. Jesus said, this is my blood of the new covenant given as a ransom for many. Take and drink all of it. Father God, we thank you that without the shedding of blood, there can be no forgiveness of sin. Father, we 